but you can't have an economic strategy without addressing housing. Yeah. Without addressing childcare. I mean, yeah. that those days of thinking that they're separate are gone. Yeah. That's the old thinking. This is Van Collar. My name is Mo Amir, and today on This is Van Color, I am joined by a Canadian Olympian and British Columbia member of the Legislative Assembly and Cabinet Minister. Inducted into the Delta Sports Hall of Fame in 2013 as a field hockey player, he has represented Canada in the 2002 and 2006 Commonwealth Games the 2003 and 2007 Pan American Games, taking gold in 2007, and in the 2000 and 2008 Olympic Games. First elected in 2017, re-elected this past October in 2020, and representing the BCNDP in the riding of Delta North, he was the Parliamentary Secretary for Sport and Multiculturalism and the Parliamentary Secretary for Forests, Lands, natural resource operations, and rural development. He is my Barabai, the current BC Minister of Jobs and Economic Recovery and Innovation. He is Minister Ravi Kalon Ravi. How are you? Good, Mo. Thanks for having me. You're going to have to explain what Barabai means. And, uh, <laughs> my big and, brother. <laughs> I, know, I know. Everyone's going to be like, what? What are you talking about? And actually, not related. So make sure we not put related. That out there. <laughs> no. Throw that out there. No, that'll be this big thing. Yeah. But no, not related. But I, I look up to you in yeah. a lot of ways. And Thank I think you. you're a role model in the community. So that's what I meant by yeah, Barabai. I appreciate that. Thanks, Mo. I appreciate it. I feel like this is a long time coming, so I appreciate you being here. It is a long time coming, man. I just I, I follow your uh, your progress and all your programs, and you're always making news, and uh, <laughs> I just love the way you uh, you engage in people in conversation. So I'm glad uh, I'm glad I finally made it on the list of, uh, of being able to be invited to your show. Thank you so much for those kind words. You were always on the list. It's just finding the right time. That's no, all no, it comes I, down I, to. I appreciate it. <laughs> I want to go back to the campaign trail. BC Liberal leader, and I guess he's still technically their leader, Andrew Wilkinson, made some comments about you being angry and divisive. And I actually remember my dad, most senior, heard this and he came to me and he said, Who is this Ravi Kalon? And I showed him your photo and he was like, Oh, that guy, that guy smiles all the time. He's always happy. And, and you know, he does talk about some serious things. He's been talking about racism in BC, and, but he just seems like a nice man. And most senior found it to be racially offensive, even though in the literal text, there's nothing racially charged. So I asked him, you know, why do you think it was racially charged? And he couldn't quite describe it, but he just said, like, he felt it was another way of insulting a Desi leader, a brown guy. And we've even heard Bowen Ma talk about this as well. She has cited it as an example of something that's racially charged. I don't want to make this about Andrew Wilkinson, but I just want to ask you, like, how do you take those comments? And did you think that they were 
racially tinged or charged. Yeah. Well, the whole thing was bizarre, uh, to be honest with you. The, the entire thing was bizarre. I mean, at one point I thought to myself, is this guy running to be the premier of BC or does he, is he running to be the MLA of North Delta? <laughs> uh, like I was just, uh, it, it, the whole thing just threw me off. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, and he, and Andrew Wilkinson's not a racist. Um, so, you know, I, I don't I, think I, so I, either. I don't, he's yeah. not. Um, and so, you know, I want to just put that there. But I will say, like yesterday, I was speaking to some high school students at uh, Sands uh, Secondary, and one of the young men who asked me a question, and it was really profound. It took me some time to think about it. And he said, you know, every time people see me, uh, I feel like they think I'm a thug mm. or they think I'm. Uh, you know, he's like, I was riding my bike through a park and he's like, you know, I can just feel the way people were adjusting. And he said, I don't want to feel that way. Mm. And I thought to myself, you know, that's kind of what those comments were, right? Those, that, that's, those are stereotypes that a lot of young South Asian males battle with, mm -hmm. you know, you're, you know, that you're angry, that you're, you're, um, you know, the disrespectful, you're, that's not the case, you know. Like there's this uh, famous South Asian song that came out, and it was called um, uh, "I'm a Brown Boy," right? It was, you know, the the, the singer is talking about "I'm a Brown Boy," but he was giving the connotation that he's, you know, this tough, tough guy. But that's not what being a brown boy means. Mm -hmm. A brown boy can be a person who runs a podcast successful. Uh, could be an MLA. Could be a doctor. Could be an engineer. And I think. I think the, the challenge with those comments um, wasn't that they were, I thought, racist. It's just it fed into a stereotype of young South Asian males that I think I reject. Um, and and so that's what made me feel uncomfortable. So maybe that's what uh, Mo Senior was feeling as well, right? <laughs> because he's, you know, anyone that's come to this country has had to fight those stereotypes. Mm -hmm. And here I am, uh, you know, the privilege and the honor of being the Minister for Jobs, Economic Recovery, and Innovation. But right now in front of you, I'm wearing a hoodie. And when I go out that door... People don't see me as the Minister of Economic Jobs. They see me as probably a young South Asian male with a, with a hoodie on. And I don't want those connotations to be put on me or that young student that I talked to yesterday at Sands Secondary. Yeah, and I appreciate that. And, you know, this has been a theme of the show, particularly last year, racism, anti-racism, representation. And personally, I mean, if you're asking me, I don't think Andrew Wilkinson is racist either. I've had him on the show twice. Nothing about him says that. But I also found those comments to be racially charged because I've been in that boat as well. You know, I've, as a podcaster, commentator, I've been called angry or toxic mm. and these like nonsense labels. And I'll be honest, they generally come from Gen X boomer mm. white folks, some of whom are prominent in media and politics. And again, that doesn't mean all Gen X boomer white folks. It just means when that label is thrown at me, that's who it's coming from. And I almost think it's like a misplaced way of saying, I disagree with you. Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, instead of me being described as edgy or passionate or words that have like a cooler positive connotation, sometimes you get these other words that almost feel like they're trying to put you in your place. And I think maybe it is this unconscious racialized trope of being the angry, unreasonable brown guy. And I think that people of color are sensitive to that. And I think maybe that's what Bowen as well was picking up on. And that's not to say that you can't call someone angry when they're angry. It's just to say that when, when I'm speaking passionately about something I care about and you disagree, mm -hmm. and if you default to angry, whereas you might not have done that with, with someone else. And I think actually in your case, it's worse because, like I said, you always seem to have a smile on your face. Yeah. When you're serious, you're serious, and that's fine. 
but you just seem like this happy-go-lucky guy, right? Well, I like to think so too, and you know, and I think the way, what you described is bang on. Um, and you know, women understand that. Mm-hmm. You know, like if a woman uh, is in the legislature and asking some serious questions, you know. People right away think, oh, wow, she's, you know, whatever. I won't say the words, yeah. but, you know, they have this. But no, she's she's effective and she's doing her job. But it's so there, there's challenges that women face. Uh, and then there's also challenges that, you know, as a person of color or black indigenous people that we face and there are stereotypes and there's that undertone, right? There's, it's that, it's almost like a dog whistle. <laughs> yeah. It's almost like a dog whistle. And, and, um, and when, when that whistle is blown, we hear it first. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so that's why we're sensitive to it. You know, we know that sound. We don't like that sound. And so it's our responsibility to call that sound out all the time mm-hmm. before it gets to everybody else. And so I think that's an important thing. Absolutely. And it could be, like I said, unconscious, right? It doesn't have to be this purposeful racist tinge. It yep. just could be something that totally. that evokes that. So. You went on an anti-racism tour across BC in, in 2019, and you were taking in stories that were far more serious and systemic than, than being called angry. <laughs> and then 2020 ended up being such a pivotal year in opening up this dialogue about representation and anti-racism work. In terms of BC specifically, what were things that you discovered in, in 2019 or that you discovered even last year that maybe surprised you or, or you think maybe would surprise other people? Yeah, you know, uh, it is fascinating, you know, that that whole thing happened, the Human Rights Commission consultation, the anti-racism, and then all of a sudden you see this massive explosion of the topic. Yeah. Um, And, you know, what I found when I traveled the province was a lot of well-meaning people. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, there's a lot of people in our communities throughout the province that are well-meaning, that really care um, and, uh, and I, I really enjoyed it, it was, but it was very hard. Uh, it was very hard because every conversation started the same way. This is a good community. You know, you know, we all get along very well. The, you know, the issues aren't really there. Um, and so it was a bit of this, like, you know, uh, taking up the space of like, you know, we're okay. Mm-hmm. And then you'd always see the few indigenous and the people of color in the room just kind of drop in their seat, right? Because... <laughs> Because especially in your smaller communities, you don't have the power. Yeah, you know, you're you're usually in a in a minority, Uh, and so you don't have the power to say, "Wait a minute, Um, sorry, Mayor," uh, but let me tell you, it's not. Mm. Um, And so, what I'd always go into the room, and I'd always uh, after the first one, I figured out, I would say the same thing, which is, I just want to let everybody know that this is going to be an uncomfortable conversation. Yeah. But it's also going to be a safe place. So let's try to keep it a safe space so that people can explore their their biases uh, in a way that it's both okay to share and at the same time uh, to uh, not make people feel like, hey, they're being attacked. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that that's the first thing. And the second thing I always said uh, in all those consultations was I'm not, and I was talking to the, most of the Indigenous and the people of color, uh, I'm, I don't need to hear your sob story. I don't need to hear about your trauma. I don't need you to come and that's not what this space is. This is not so you can tell us how you've been impacted so that everybody else can feel something. 
you know, that, that's not a burden I want to put on you. You know, right. you don't have to do that. Let's talk about the issue, but you don't have to do that. And that way, I think there was a lot of relief for people, like mm-hmm. especially those that are in the room, because everyone kind of looked at them after we said, this is a good place. Like, tell us it's not. <laughs> it was just a weird, like, silence. And so I, I would, I try, but, you know, I, I found a lot of the conversations, really good conversations. And you know what? I give kudos to mayors mm-hmm. and counselors that showed up at those meetings. It's courage. That's the courage we need, actually, to get out this conversation, is them getting in the room knowing that it might be an uncomfortable conversation. Yeah. Uh, and so I give props to everybody that showed up um, uh, in all the communities I faced. But every time the meeting ended, I would just hang out just for a bit. And I, like, like clockwork, that train is never late. One Indigenous person will come over and tell me about the history of the racism they faced. Right. Uh, that, you know, new immigrant who works at uh, Tim Hortons, who said, you know what? Um, we have a game at Tim Hortons uh, that uh, if you get somebody's coffee wrong and they tell you to go back to your country, uh, we all kind of ring a little bell in in the Tim Hortons as in like it just happened again. Yeah. And I, and I remember saying to this young woman, Jeez. she just arrived and I said, you know, you know that's that's really wrong. Yeah. And, and it's okay for you to be upset about it. Yeah. Because she was doing it in a humorous way. Um, but I, I was like, you know, it's okay for you to you know, um, for you to be upset about it. Yeah. You know, just because you're a temporary foreign worker or you're uh, not a citizen or you're a student doesn't mean you have to take that abuse. And I think that relieved a lot of people. So it was hard, you know, I, uh, there was a lot of stories uh, that came out of that. But what I learned is that that to address racism, it needs to be done community by community. Mm-hmm. And it needs to be done by conversation by conversation. Uh, you know, and, and you know, there was this amazing story of, um, what's well, an awful story, but it's an amazing reaction, where in one community, somebody painted uh, swastikas all over the school. Hmm. Um, and, and the Jewish community got together and they said, you know what? We don't want you to paint over it. They said, we don't want you to paint over it. We will eventually. Yeah. But when you paint over it, what you're essentially doing is you're saying, oh, you know, don't worry about that. Yeah, like brushing it on the Brushing rug. the one. They yeah. said, let's just leave it there for a week or two. Huh. Because they want people to drive by and cringe and then realize that these issues are in our community. Right. And and I found that really powerful. Uh, and so um, what we did was we launched an anti-racism network, which essentially gives resources to communities to come up with what they want to do. Because a solution needs to come from grassroots. You can't mm-hmm. create a government program that says, hey, we're going to solve racism. Here it is. It's not going to work. Yeah. <laughs> Communities need to be at the table. Um, local elected officials, um, schools, business leaders, they need to have frank conversations. They need to explore what they don't know because mm-hmm. we all have things that we don't know. Uh, and then they need to come up with an action plan that they own. Uh, and then they need to take charge with, and and that's what's happening in communities throughout this province, and that's what makes me hopeful. It's not going to solve things overnight, yeah, but the conversations are happening. There's a couple of things there that I I love that you brought up. The first is that these conversations are uncomfortable, and we have to make that space to be able to have them without people feeling like the finger is being pointed at them, or that also the se- and going into the second point that there is an ex- expectation of emotional labor to go over this stuff. Because in a lot of ways, it's a fine balance of you want participation and understanding, but at the same time, you don't want everyone to drudge up their trauma if they don't want to, or if they're not ready to, or Mm. for whatever reason. One thing that I kind of learned in, particularly in the last year, I thought that people had a fundamental understanding of like the difference between 
overt racism, like the swastikas graffitied on school, covert racism, where it's like people are racist, but they don't really express it, they suppress it, and systemic racism, which has to do with more with outcomes. Why are the health outcomes of a certain group lower than another group? Why does a certain group, as we've seen in some reports re uh, released recently, why are some groups treated differently in the medical care system than other groups? And I think a lot of people don't have that nuanced understanding that racism doesn't mean that you're out there punching people of a different race or color. It, it can express itself in many different ways. And people even still, unfortunately, cringe at that idea of systemic racism. Well, I'm a nurse and I'm not racist. And it's like, no, no, no. we're not saying you specifically <laughs> yeah. are racist. It's why are these outcomes the way they are? And we have to have an adult conversation of why that exists. So you know, a lot of people look at the tour that you did and, and they say, okay, well, why is that important? Why is government involved? But I think we need that if we're going to, especially if we're going to talk about systemic issues. Mm -hmm. and, the, and the process is more important than even the outcome. Mm -hmm. The outcome's important, but the process of it, the opening up the conversation, opening up a wound that hasn't probably healed properly. You mm -hmm. know, I always compare it to, you know, if you pull your hamstring, it's a tear. Yeah. If you rest for a little while, it doesn't mean it got fixed. Yeah. It just, you know, the, the tear is still there. And so how do you fix that tear? Well, you get your thumb and you dig in there, you get rid of the scar tissue, and then you build that muscle back up mm -hmm. again. And that's how I see that that racism is going to get addressed in, in, in the various levels. And how do you have that conversation? You know, a lot of people uh, go, I remember I used to get frustrated and there's this like wokeness thing, right? Like uh, somebody says something and you go and you attack them because it makes you feel good. I used to get mad at people for that. I was like, you know, that's that's not how that person is going to get to the mm -hmm. space of having that conversation. But I understand that anger because, you know, people have frustration and anger. And at some point they're like, you know what? I'm tired of dealing with this. Yeah, I'm just going to, this is me just, and I, so I respect that the people have that anger and frustration, but the truth is that we need to get that space so that people can explore and learn the differences that you've just mentioned mm -hmm. of a covert racism and the systemic racism. Because if we don't create that space, if we don't have that dialogue, it's not going to get better. Mm -hmm. We're just going to brush it under the, like, you know, the Trump thing, you know, yes, what Trump did was he brought out uh, all the ugliness in our society, yeah. but he is not racism. He's not, just because he's gone doesn't mean racism yeah. is gone, <laughs> yeah. right? He just, he just amplified it. He just made it mainstream and public. But the problem is still there. He may be gone, but we have to still address the problem. The U.S. has to address it. But sometimes we just say, oh, it's the U.S. No, 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 no. We here have issues and we need to address them. And, and I think that conversation is happening mm -hmm. and it's not going to be easy. It's going to be ugly. And there has to be, even though we understand that it's uncomfortable, I think the entry point in the conversation has to be with some degree of comfort or at least some degree of ease, like this is a safe space. If you have a question and maybe, you know, it sounds offensive, but if you're coming in with good faith, like, let's talk about it. Cause there are some people I believe who don't know what systemic racism is, yeah. but they're afraid to ask someone because then yeah. they'll be seen as ignorant or, you know, they'll have people yelling at them or whatever. And it's like, no, 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 find that group and, and explore that idea. It can yeah. be so useful. Agreed. We need more of that. I want to move on to your current file, though. Yeah. Speaking of recovery, yeah. this is more than a hamstring, though. Yeah. Economic recovery, a monster of a file, obviously through COVID. You're overseeing the BC Small and Medium-Sized Business Recovery Grant Program. Now, we've heard that only 
$12 million in grants out of a $300 million fund has been issued in four months. Funding expires at the end of March. Why is money trickling out so slowly? And, and do you actually expect the $300 million to be spent? Well, I think uh, there's a couple things that uh, I think are important. First, that uh, in the first three months of the program, uh, let's say by the end of the year, um, we saw just over a thousand applications that had come in. Uh, when I became minister, the first thing I did actually within the first week, I met with um, the tourism operators, the um, the restaurant association, all of them, and said, "What would you want? What do we need to do differently in this program to make it more accessible?" Uh, and make it easier for applications to happen. Mm -hmm. And they gave, uh, they had a big list and we did them all. We changed everything mm. to adapt the program. And so what we're seeing since the program changed, so it's from January to now, which is like four or five weeks, a, a massive explosion. Over 6,000 applications have come in just in the last, I'd say, four weeks. And so that means the, the changes that we made made the program more accessible to more businesses. The money that's gone out reflects the applications that came in last year, which were a small number, the, the money that's going to go out are, is going to be reflective of the new applications that are coming in and they keep coming, which is the good news for us as a province. The money is not there to not give it to businesses. The money is there to get it to the businesses that need it right away. And the second part of the thing about the prior program is that it's a two-part program. One is that it, that you go and you get your recovery plan built, which every business needs, mm -hmm. and we pay for that. Second is once you've got your recovery plan, we give you the money that you need to, you know, uh, to to get your recovery underway. Mm -hmm. And so uh, it's not as easy as like I submitted my application, send me your money, like uh, it is for people that wanted their thousand bucks, for example. For the business community, it was a two-step process. We'll pay for your recovery plan. Once you've got a recovery plan, we'll give you the money to do so. And so a lot of businesses are doing that. And not only that, we even changed how the recovery plan gets made. Now, small businesses can go to their own bookkeeper and their own accountant who they feel comfortable with, and we will pay them to do the work. Hmm. Um, and so we've been responsive and changing the program, but it's not the only program. I mean, you know, like it, I appreciate sometimes the opposition wants to make it until this is the only program. We've got uh, tax credits for for businesses that are hiring and rehiring. We have a, a we reduce the price of liquor for restaurants. We uh, reduce property taxes. We, uh, uh, you know, the whole host of other measures, billions of dollars have been spent uh, to support our businesses. And, and, uh, and it's going to be tough. It's going to be tough. And, and not everybody's struggling, by the way, Mo. It's, it's, you sure, know, if you're making masks. No, no, yeah, honestly, it's, you know, there, there's a saying that we're all in the same storm, but we're all in different boats. Yeah. And, and, and that goes with the business community as well. Some folks in the business community are doing really well, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, like, and they almost feel bad about it. And, I, and I've met with many of them. And they're like, oh, business has been good for me, you know, mm -hmm. but they whisper it <laughs> because they don't want another business to feel bad about sure. what they're doing. But so there's a lot of businesses that are doing well. And then those in tourism and hospitality are struggling. And, uh, and so we got to continue to support them. I want to go back to this program specifically, though. Rob Shaw estimated that $93 million would still be left over if all 6,500 applicants were processed. And that's around the number that you just mentioned as well. Is he right? Are you leaving $100 million on the table? Well, I think uh, it, it's hard to say how much money is going to be on the table. And and, and second is we're not going to throw the money away. <laughs> you know, the, the money- Would you extend the deadline then? Well, I think we got to look at all the options. I mean, we've been we've been changing our programs uh, according to needs the entire way through. And so because the trend line has increased so much over the last month and because- uh, 
you know, about 60% of those applications are coming from the tourism sector, mm -hmm. which can get up to 45,000, not 30,000. Mm -hmm. We're going to have to watch the trend line over the next month. And then we'll have a better assessment of how much money we project is going to go out. And then we have decisions to make, right? Like, you know, is there something else we can do? Can we, you know, can we think about the program going to next year? But we'll do all those things. It's, I mean, it's not a crisis moment to do that. Our main focus right now is how do we support businesses now? And that's what we're doing is trying to make the program uh, accessible so that as many businesses can apply. Given the initial slow rollout and the initial slow uptake of this program in the first four months, was it a failed design? You know, I think that, uh, you know, during the pandemic, there's lots of critiques of everything government does. Like we're in a <laughs> pandemic and the whole world is dealing with I it. I need someone to blame, Ravi. Yeah. And, and you know what? And, that's <laughs> and I know fine. you're smiling, yeah. <laughs> but. <laughs> yeah. No, and I appreciate that. I mean, there there were, there's a whole host of programs that government will do uh, in a pandemic. Some will be amazing. Some will work as well. Uh, and so uh, if, you know, people want to do that game after, that's fine. Uh, but right now, uh, what I'll tell you is that every program that we had has changed changed as the pandemic has changed. You know, we've, we know COVID has changed and the needs and the pressures have changed and we've changed. I mean, government has been phenomenally innovative throughout this pandemic. If you look at creating massive programs that usually take six, seven months to create, being created in weeks, yeah, you're going to have some flaws in that program. <laughs> um, but you know, what you do is you continue to adjust. It's like a ship, you know, it's, it's always needs a little bit of adjustment to keep it going. And, and that's how we've seen, that's how we viewed all the programs that we put out. Just keep listening to businesses and, and people and stakeholders and keep adjusting and working along the way. Will this $300 million be spent to help small and medium-sized businesses in its entirety? The money that's been allocated will go to supporting businesses, yes. So we're a month out, uh, more than a month out from the end of March. I'm going to call you out if that money is not spent. Oh, yeah. Hey, listen, like I said, the money is not going to just disappear. I, I, I assure you, we're not going to burn it. Uh, Mo, the money is going to go to supporting businesses, people, and communities. That's where the money is going to go to. And so if we need to make adjustments uh, for through Treasury and through budgets, we're going to do that. But I assure you one thing, Mo, we're not going to burn the money. Uh, and it's going to go to an important cause, which is keeping people safe and businesses operating. Did the October election interfere in the rollout of this program? Well, the applications continued. Uh, in fact, the intake process started in the middle of the election. So okay. the bureaucracy actually launched the program and the intake process in the middle of the election. So businesses were applying through the, throughout the election. Now, uh, you can maybe say that the bandwidth of the media for uh pushing out the programs was more occupied on the election. Mm. The program was operating. All the stakeholders, uh, and I won't name them all, but all the associations that represent members knew the intake was opening. They got their members the information. So it's not like people didn't know. I mean, that's what these associations do, right? They've mm -hmm. got their list. They know who needs supports and they're saying, go and apply. And so- So you reached out to the business associations, the Chamber of Commerce's- oh. And, and they've been amazing. They've been so cooperative. Uh, they've been giving us feedback. Uh, I met with the Small Business Roundtable just last week, and they're giving us sales suggestions on what we can do. Uh, and, the, and, and this is the amazing thing of this pandemic is everybody's been working cooperatively to find solutions. And I hope that that's the, the mentality that we take when we get out of this. You've said, and you just kind of alluded to this earlier, that the BC government has spent a billion and a half dollars to support small businesses. So very briefly, but somewhat comprehensively, 
what has been done? Can you go over the full portfolio of recovery for small and medium-sized businesses that the BC government has offered? Because you hear commentators and opposition saying that you guys haven't done anything for business and you've been sitting on your hands and there's money that hasn't been spent and all these other things. So run me through what you've done for small and medium-sized businesses. Yeah, and you know, and I appreciate that's the the opposition's role is to do what they do. Um, but you know, that being said, uh, you know, for example, just last week, a week and a half ago, we announced uh, a launch online.ca, which is uh, essentially up to $7,500 for a business to be able to go online, to set up their e-commerce and have a digital presence. Hmm. We know that this pandemic, the changes we thought were going to be seven to 10 years out happen in one year, and that pace is not about to slow down. And so we need to continue to support our small and medium-sized businesses to get online, to to get their e-commerce set up. And uh, you know, just in the one week we thought, you know, maybe 1,500 businesses is what we had the money for, you know, 12 million bucks. Uh, we had uh, 1,200 businesses apply. Wow. Uh, and, and so, you know, and, and the opposition was saying, oh, it's too late. Too late for who? These 1,200 businesses that applied within a week don't think it's too late. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe they've given up. Uh, that the small businesses have no hope, but I still believe there's hope. And and so we also launched a digital bootcamp. The digital bootcamp was phenomenal. It essentially was a program over five weeks where businesses can learn the basics about how to be online and what that's like. Because a lot of businesses, they don't know even where to start. Sure. Huge uptake in the program. And not to mention all the other tax measures, right? Um, you know, the the I believe one of the associations recently put out a report that said two-thirds of all businesses in BC right now are operating with government supports. Two-thirds. I mean, But that includes federal government as well. Well, of course. Yeah. yeah, yeah. No, no, of course. And we've been working with the federal government all the way through, mm -hmm. you know, and we've been finding gaps within their programs and trying to fill the gaps as well. And so this is not a, you know, we're doing better than uh, the federal government business. No, uh, we're working cooperatively with them on the programs uh, and, uh, and it, we're showing, and people don't care. We're in a pandemic. They don't care that it's municipal. They don't care if it's federal. Sure. They just want the supports and that's what the view we've taken. And so that's uh, tax credits for uh, hiring or rehiring employees. That's um, uh, liquor pricing uh, changes so that uh, the restaurants can get a little bit higher uh, markup for the liquor that they are selling. Mm -hmm. uh, that's um, putting in things for around um, um, uh, food delivery apps so that they're not uh, you know, um, taking advantage of our vulnerable restaurant sector right now. Uh, so the list is huge and the programs keep coming and, and also programs for, for rural communities, targeted to rural communities as well, right? Like, uh, you know, uh, for young people to get out and and help uh, uh, fire safety in communities, work in the bush. We've got contracts on building roads. We've got contracts uh, cleaning up our the plastics out of the ocean right now. And so the massive program, it's comprehensive. We've got a program out for manufacturers right now that um, helps manufacturers both um, become more climate friendly, but also pivot their businesses because we know that's a challenge. We have a, a program out for um, developers who want to start building more sustainably and want to use mass timber and they want to do a project, but they want us to help de-risk the project. So we're doing that. So you know, it's comprehensive. It's huge uh, package and one of the most comprehensive in Canada. I just met with an association that represents members across Canada and they're saying openly, BC is the envy of all of Canada. And it's because people are doing the right thing. They're keeping uh, themselves and their community safe. They're following the advice by science. And, you know, I give full credit to Prima Horgan 
Because if you look at some of the premiers across the country, and I won't name names, I know you're going to try to get me to. But <laughs> this you know, is what the show is all about. I, I appreciate that. But <laughs> don't but, you want to be on the front page of the Vancouver Sun? <laughs> Come no, on, Rafi. <laughs> but this is why I appreciate Premier Horgan so yeah. much because he made he made a decision early in the pandemic that he was going to let Dr. Henry and Minister Dix lead because he wanted science to lead mm-hmm. because he already was thinking about where we are now. He was already thinking about where we're going. And if people didn't have confidence that we were leading by science and making decisions on science and not politics, he knew that people wouldn't follow the rules. He knew pe- the businesses wouldn't have, the, people would have confidence to go into businesses. And so, you know, every political um, advisor would have been saying, hey, you got to be the leader. You got to be out there every single day. And he made that decision, probably against some advice, but it's the right decision. And and that's why we're, I think, in a good place right now. Yeah. I'm going to ask you a spicy question. The tourism industry, mm-hmm. I feel badly for them. You know, it's it's already a seasonal business. They've really suffered, but I don't see it getting better until BC can welcome travelers. Mm-hmm. And Premier John Horgan has been very clear that we don't want travelers from other provinces to come to BC right now. We're obviously telling people to stay within their own communities. The industry will bounce back once the demand is there, once travelers are it's safe for them to come back. It's not like the industry will be gone forever. And certainly, unfortunately, some small and medium-sized businesses may not make it without support. So what's the point of saving the tourism business? Because knowing that once travelers come back, the industry will immediately come back. It might be different players, different businesses, but that industry will come back. Because I just wonder, like, you know, if any industry in BC should be left to the free market, it should be tourism, right? And I'm, this is not an anti-business slag. It's just saying that businesses have this propensity to, uh, you know, complain about taxes when things are in, are good. <laughs> and then when things are going bad, every, every business is, is asking for help. And tourism is one of those ones that I see bouncing right back as soon as, you know, things go back to quote unquote normal. So why save them? Well, you know, that, that's that free market mentality. Nobody's a free marketer anymore. <laughs> it's gone. Okay. The BC liberals used to call themselves the free, uh, what are they, a free market, the coalition of free, free market, enterprise, free enterprise coalition. Yeah. B- BS. Okay. The first legislation they uh, brought into the legislature as the opposition was to put on re- regulations and restrictions on food delivery apps. Hmm. That, that time is gone. People realize that government is needed. Okay. Government, it, the supports government provides is important. And in and, and part of recovery, government's going to have to play a role. This is not going to be solved by the private sector alone. Mm-hmm. It's just not going to happen. Uh, and so there's been a shift in that thinking. And, and, and to the question that you asked, is, is, is it worth saving the tourism industry? Yes. It is worth saving the tourism industry. It's much harder for us to build up these businesses again uh, when people can start coming back. It's much easier for us to support them now through this transition. But, you know, uh, my view is it's not just giving them money because uh, it's about helping them transform and be prepared for both the business coming back and also to address the other challenges we have. You know, we Mm. need to address diversity. We need to address climate change. And so if we can find ways to support them and then have those things that societally we really care about addressed at the same time, I think that's a good thing. And so it's going to be hard. Uh, You know, my hope is that as vaccinations start rolling out, that that we start seeing more um, uh, domestic travel happening. uh, And that'll be a big boost, I think, to communities. You know, we have more potential for people within BC traveling than just with internationals coming. And so that's my my hope. Uh, But I think that, you know, I think there's an understanding we're not going to see a lot of international tourism for a little while yet. Um, And that's just 
that's just the, the nature of the beast. So, but we do need to support them and we are, and we're going to continue to do so. And I can appreciate that. And, and I want to be very clear. I'm not against the tourism yeah. industry, yeah. but that has come up. You know, has, people ask, why do we help this industry? Why don't we it has come up. look closer at this other industry? And tourism is one that certainly has a lot of focus. Yeah. Vice President of the Independent Contractors and Business Association, Jordan Bateman, who is a proven truth teller and who absolutely is not speaking on behalf of special interests above the interests of British Columbians as a whole, said this about you. He said, a guy who's never run a small business or any business probably doesn't have the answers to turn the BC economy around. What is your response to the charge that you're effectively unqualified for the current ministerial job. Yeah. And by the way, I do not agree with him here. No, no, that's okay. Uh, I guess the first thing is Jordan Bateman who? <laughs> I mean, I mean. Uh, I think he was a bag man for Rich Coleman yeah, at one point. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I know, I know. Well, you know, uh, I don't I don't spend much time thinking about what he has to do. I mean, he runs, uh, uh, he runs, uh, uh, his job is to do political assassinations and, uh, and, uh, and, you know, and he's a bag man for the BC Liberals. And so I don't worry too much about what he has to say. You know, there is a leadist mentality around these, this question, mm -hmm. you know, like only somebody who's run a major corporation should be doing anything within government. You know, God forbid you have people who have lived experiences who uh, don't, you know, wear a suit and tie every day, get the power to run government. Because you know what? That mentality is the reason why the BC Liberals failed. That mm. mentality is the reason why that the province saw huge inequality uh, in our society. Uh, I think you need more people who have lived experience. You need more average people, uh, average Joes, as they call them, uh, at the table, because you're going to start seeing decisions made that reflect the average person more so. And so, uh, you know, I don't worry too much about that kind of criticism. My family's ran a business, uh, restaurant for a decade. Uh, and you know, uh, you know, when I say a family business, I mean like, you know, my mom is the cook, my yeah. sister's, <laughs> uh, busting tables, my brother and dad used to run the till. And, uh, you know, and my skills were, uh, uh, prep cook and, uh, washing dishes. And, uh, <laughs> and, and so we ran that. And I, so I know that, I know that mindset, you know, that, that, you know, when times are, bad, you're stressed. And when times are good, you're still stressed because you don't know what's going to be tomorrow. We lived it. We lived it for a decade. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I worked in banking. <laughs> I, uh, I know that feeling of you have to work to get paid. Um, and, uh, and if you don't deliver that day, you don't get paid. And so uh, I think those are the, the mindsets that I bring to the role. And, and, and the truth is, um, what we need now is a government that listens and, and is collaborative and will work with everyone. And that's what we're doing. And so, yeah, I don't worry about the naysayers too much. Um, and uh, it's just, it's fuel. It's it's motivation to, to get the job done. <laughs> I do love that response. And I love that you pointed out the implicit elitism that only some people are capable to be in government. Mm -hmm. And I I dismiss that so much. And then I get called a populist or whatever. And it's like, you know, that's the nature of a democracy where it's supposed to be for the people. So it's represented by people. And we need more, not saying that we need less accountants or less lawyers or less business people, but we need more teachers and regular people who live regular lives. And that's the only way you can connect to a populace. Yeah. Right? Uh, I, I've met, I've met, I met, uh, and I won't say the name, but I met uh, this indigenous elder who didn't even finish high school. Okay. Um, but lived a life that most people cannot live mm. um, that could run this province better than Jordan Bateman. 
Okay. Because I mean, that's a low bar, Robbie. That's a low bar. But, but no, what my point is, or better than most people, sure. I'm saying. Okay. And the reason why is that um, because there's something about people's life experiences. It's about something about their lived experiences that can position them well to think about people when they make decisions. And that's what the premier always says because he lives by it. Mm-hmm. You know, think about people. How are we going to help people? And and uh, and so that's the mindset we bring into this work, and uh, we're going to continue to do it. I'm going to continue to do it for sure. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we were talking before we started rolling here about something like childcare, right? And the conversation around childcare. And it's if you're rich and you have a nanny or you know whatever, you're not really thinking about the impact that universal affordable childcare will have on a community because mm-hmm. it doesn't affect you. I don't have kids. I never thought about it before until I talked to Dr. Amanda Watson, until I talked to Minister Katrina Chen. Those are two people with, I mean, Dr. Watson is an academic. Katrina Chen is obviously very well accomplished in her career, but those are two people with the lived experience mm-hmm. of going through childcare as well. Yeah. Right? And, and it's only when they were able to communicate that experience to me that I was like, oh man, this is a huge file. <laughs> it's massive. I mean, if we look at economic recovery, I mean, wh- what, is, what are we going to have to do? It's going to be led by innovation. We know that innovation is going to lead. The changes we've seen happen in the last year, it's not about to slow down. So we know it's going to be led by innovation. We know that our recovery needs to be sustainable. You can't just get through one pandemic and then not deal with the other crisis that we mm-hmm. have to deal with was climate change. And third is we have to be inclusive and we have to address inequality. Mm-hmm. COVID is inequality. COVID is racism. Uh, you know, COVID uh, is all the problems we have in society is COVID. And so, you know, this the saying when the tide comes out, you see this, the challenges in society. Well, we're seeing them. And so there's no separation between getting uh, the economy going and addressing inequality. And childcare is critical. Mm -hmm. You know, if if we want to see success, we need to address, we need housing, we need healthcare, obviously. We need to strengthen healthcare. Mm -hmm. We need to to invest in childcare. If you look at March, when we were in the worst of the pandemic, you saw the job numbers drop and you saw uh, people get displaced and businesses shut down. Mm you saw a huge drop in women's participation in the workforce. Huge drop-off in employment amongst women. Now, I think someone can rightfully argue that's sexism, right? Because schools shut down and daycare shut down and women were overwhelmingly taking the responsibility of taking care of kids and staying home. Sure. Um, but it, it is the clearest evidence of what the impact childcare can make on uh, economic recovery and a fully functioning society. Mm-hmm. When women can freely participate in the economy is when we will be able to see our economy fire at full cylinders. And so I'm all about childcare. It's it's great. It's a social policy, but it's a, it's really, it's an economic policy. And, and uh, we were just chatting about that earlier. And I really do appreciate that because sometimes I feel like when people talk about economic recovery, they point to the stock market or they point to these other numbers, whereas... Just as a citizen, and I'm very privileged, but just as a citizen, I want to say, okay, what are the poverty numbers? Has there been a reduction in child poverty? Where are we with homelessness? You know, these are the issues to me that, or these are the indicators to me that prove an economic recovery or a robust economy, not just you know, how my RSPs are doing. And there's no separation. Every small business group that I talk to, you know, they don't just say, uh, and sometimes they say, well, you know, we need to cut this tax and we want to cut taxes and all that stuff. Sometimes they do say that. But you know what they always talk about? They talk about childcare. Mm. They talk about housing. They talk about um, street poverty and how that affects their businesses. Mm -hmm. 
so what that tells me is there's no separation. You can't addressing income inequality also addresses economic um, uh, economic measures as well. Mm-hmm. There's no separation, and so I think when we look at the recovery and as we go forward, we got to we have to view them as one. We can't view them as separate. We can't view them as oh yeah, well you take care of the social stuff. All of it is critically intertwined, and mm-hmm. we have to do all of that at the same time. When indigenous communities can participate in the economy in a greater sense, uh, greater way. Uh, it's good for the economy mm-hmm. because they're not taking the money and investing it in Europe. They're mm-hmm. keeping the employment in their community. They're hiring people outside of their nations to to work. And so all these things, I think we need to put in our economic recovery. And that's some of the work we're doing right now. Let's talk about some of this money that might be leaving BC. It's a very small amount, but I think it's still significant. I have to ask you about the skip the dishes BC fee. And you talked mm-hmm. about this a little earlier. We've heard that Skip the Dishes and some of these uh, food delivery services are charging a BC fee. I think it's 99 cents or something like that. And this was done after the government capped commissions. Can anything be done here? Can the BC government actually tell businesses what to charge in voluntary transactions between customers and businesses? Yeah, well... Let me back up and explain to you uh, or your listeners why we did it. I mean, restaurants are struggling right now. They can't have people inside mm-hmm. and and they're now reliant on these kind of delivery apps. And so, uh, you know, all many other jurisdictions went to 15%, but this BC tax or whatever they're calling it was only brought in here in BC. Uh, they're not bringing in other really? jurisdictions. Huh. And so, um, you know, how much money is enough? I mean, that's the question I ask, you know, like, you know, I, I'm, I'm a big proponent of innovation, right? And, but I'm talking innovation when I'm talking about like our resource sector, which is producing some of the lowest carbon emissions products in the world. Mm. I'm talking about people who are addressing climate change and creating batteries for storage. Delivering food is, it, to me, is, is yes, it's innovation, but how much money is enough? I mean, they're making so much money and now they have to add another piece to, to get people. I mean, I just, you know, I just find it so frustrating. Uh, and, and, and their workers are not even get paid that well. Sure. And so, you know, what are they, how are they contributing to our society? Mm -hmm. You know, how are they bringing wealth to our communities? And they're not, they're taking this wealth and they're moving it somewhere else. And so I think there's some tough conversations that need to happen about that. No, and that's fair. I'm just wondering, can the government come in? I mean, you cap commissions, but can it come in and say, no, you can't charge this? Yeah, and I don't know the answer. I mean, the Solicitor General's office has been handling uh, this piece of the, of the pie. I've been, I've got other, many other pieces that I'm going to take <laughs> care of. So I'm not sure what the solution will be, Mo. Um, you know, I, certainly when we brought it in, it was to give restaurants some certainty that they're not going to go bankrupt because they, you know, the the sector was trying to, you know, take every penny they had, mm-hmm. uh, and at the same time, we put in protections for workers so they couldn't take it out of their commissions. Um, and so, you know, that's why the, the the pieces were put in the way they were. And now they've done this. And I think, you know, there there are some apps that aren't charging it. Mm-hmm. And what I would say to people is this: first and foremost, if you want to support your local business, please order and pick it up. 
I mean, I appreciate, you know, getting up and changing out of your clothes and all that stuff is hard <laughs> for some, but go and do that. I mean, right now they need us. And I always say we need them. Uh, and they're the ones who you're going to go to if you need a, your hockey team uh, that needs a scholarship or sponsorship. Uh, you know, if you have a school recital and you need a sponsorship, you need free pizzas, you're going to the local pizza place. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and so when we go to them, when we need them, and now they need us. And so I would say is that first and foremost, support a local restaurant, order, pick it up. If you need to use an app, you know, use one that's treating the businesses fairly and treating their employees fairly. Uh, and it might require you to do a little bit of homework, but do that because um, I think that all buying habits are changing. And now it's not good enough that you produce food a certain way. Now people are going to start looking and saying, are you promoting, are you producing food uh, it, with net zero in mind? And mm -hmm. you know, what are the impacts of the environment? S same with all products that people are buying. There is a mind shift that's shifting amongst the consumer. And I, and I, I think people need to expedite that when they're looking at all these technologies. Are they providing value and good to our society and to our community and support the ones they are? I want to move away from stuff that's even related to your files. Yeah. We have to talk about COVID. Yeah. And I just have a couple of questions on this file. I know this is not your file specifically. The vaccine plan that has been set forth by Dr. Bonnie Henry. Mm -hmm. Do you think we're actually going to stick to it based on the supply that's coming into BC? Or do you foresee it being likely that vaccination dates will be pushed back for certain age groups? Yeah. Well, um, uh, first off, I think that I, it's such an impressive plan. I mean, 160 facilities across the province uh, vaccinating people. I mean, uh, I, I hope in my lifetime we never have to see this again. Mm -hmm. um, but it's a very impressive plan, but it's all dependent on supply. Uh, and uh, and I know people are frustrated. Uh, I know it. Like, I, I get messages <laughs> on my social media from people all the time that are, they're frustrated. I know a lot of folks in the business community get frustrated, right? Because they just want this done. I mean, you know, we were talking about this earlier. Like, I'm just, I'm done with it, mm -hmm. you know? And so these next few months are going to be the hardest. You know, uh, we they say that you can see the light at the end of the tunnel. It's, it's just not as bright as we want it to be. <laughs> it's a long tunnel. <laughs> it's a long tunnel. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. Where is this tunnel going? Yeah. Um, and so, um, you know, I'm hopeful that when we start seeing uh, Johnson & Janssen uh, vaccine come online and some of these other ones that are coming online that we're projecting in March, that the entire plan will get even faster. Uh, and so to your question, do I think that uh, the plan is still relevant uh, given the maybe the slower uh, amount of vaccine come in? I still think it is. I think that they built into the plan some some uh, leeway for themselves. Yeah. And it, the question isn't about the plan being relevant. And it wasn't even a critique of British Columbia's plan. It's more an assessment from you being in government, being in cabinet. Do you think that vaccinations are going to be delayed? Um, well, I, I understand we're getting a lot more this week and we're getting a lot more next week. And so uh, I'm not there yet. Uh, I'm not there yet. I, you know, I still have faith in, in the way it's going. Now, if they turn around to us and say, hey, a factory just burned down in Belgium and uh, you're not getting any for a month, well, then let's have another interview, Mo. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. But, but, but at this stage, I, I'm still hopeful that we will meet the, the targets. One criticism of Dr. Bonnie Henry that I've seen is that sometimes her advice is very vague. Me personally, a lot of stuff, and I'm not looking at every single thing that she's commenting on, like schools or anything like that. But for me personally, I feel like I get it. But there are some people who are still very unclear about 
the bubble. And they still think you can have a, a safe sex, even though, you know, we're beyond that now. <laughs> Do you think the government, both Adrian Dix and Dr. Bonnie Henry, have been very clear in terms of their public health recommendations? And even that, it's like, there's recommendations and then there's orders. And I think there is a general frustration amongst people who are trying to do their best, but then they see other people turn around and go, oh, that was just a recommendation. Yeah. Do you feel like there's uncertainty in, in, in instructions given to British Columbians? Well, it, it's, it's a tough question to answer because it depends on every person, right? Uh, you know, some people genuinely maybe don't understand. Some people are finding ways to try to get around the rules because sure. they want the nuances so they can, you know, find the nuanced way to do whatever they want to do. Uh, and some people fully get it. And uh, and some of it depends on how much you're watching the news, uh, how much you're getting sound bites on. I mean, you know, in a pandemic, uh, the level of communication critique is higher than any other way, either, you know, like than anything else you'll ever do. And so, um, you know, I, uh, it's hard for me to answer that question, Mo, because the truth is I watch all the press conferences. And so I feel like I'm well informed. I'm, I sit at tables where we have these conversations. So I always feel like I'm well informed, but I don't want to judge people that don't feel that they're informed or feel like the answers aren't clear enough either because it's all depends on the person and, and, and how they relate with the information. Um, you know, will, will it ever be perfect? No. Will, will somebody be able to point to a government and say they got a perfect? No, that's just not going to happen. But what I will say is that we've been adjusting again all the way through, and Dr. Mm -hmm. Henry's been adjusting all the way through. I mean, we're so lucky <laughs> to have Minister Dixon and Dr. Henry in the way that they've been communicating. There's always critiques, you know, we want more information, we want race-based data, we want all this, and, you know, and I appreciate that. And, you know, uh, and, and some of those things, you know, I, I would love to have as well. Um, but we have what we have. Uh, you know, you go to you go to uh, war with the army you have. This thing, you know, and so we've got all the things we've got, and we're we're trying to make decision making the best we can. And and Dr. Henry and Minister Dix have a lot of pressure on their shoulders to always get it right. Um, and uh, and I, you know, I'm biased, but I think they're doing a pretty good job. Yeah, yeah. In case anyone doesn't know, you do have an implicit bias here. <laughs> no, I appreciate Full disclosure. <laughs> I, I appreciate that. I guess. Part of me wonders, and this isn't a political mm -hmm. question, it's just a general question. I think part of me wonders if there's this gray area or ambiguity created sometimes just to allow for flexibility. And I think even with the mask mandate, and this is something that I went on the radio on CKNW, I ranted that we need a mask mandate right now. I was in favor of it, you know, the, pretty much from the jump. And we didn't have it until some people would say later. But I think Dr. Henry was correct in saying that once we institute this, there's going to be a lot of stigmatization that's created. Mm -hmm. And we literally saw that week, people were getting into fights at stores. Yeah. And you've created certain divisions once you create very hard and fast rules. Is that part of the strategy where in order to not create divisions within communities that are already isolated and atomized from each other, we are allowing a little bit of gray area? Yeah, well, you know, I think um, people always want more firm action. They want, you know, punishments and they want, you know, uh, people go to jail and they want, uh, you know, like thousands of dollars of fines. And, um, and it's, it's tricky. I would just say this, that, um, 
you know, uh, who am I to critique Dr. Henry? She's a pandemic expert. Um, she's this is not her first rodeo. Um, but I will say that social media has created uh, thousands of pandemic experts. Sure. Everybody <laughs> is a pandemic expert, man. Like you know, like my social media fills up with uh, everybody that's you know knows everything. And I always say that uh, you know Dr. Henry is following the best science uh, that's available and adjusting mm-hmm. to uh, decisions as it goes forward. And um, and so yeah, I just it's hard to answer the question just because it all depends on each person. Each person will see it differently and feel about it differently. Uh, whether they, what, and it depends on their agendas. People have different agendas, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, and so it's really hard. It's hard to say. But I, you know, I haven't had any issues. Certainly many of my family members uh, message me about, you know, like this question and this question. So there's always questions. Um, but, you know, our media has done a good job. I think there's going to be a study that's done after around uh, societies or communities or provinces that have done better and compared to how much faith that they had in their government institutions and their media institutions prior to and during uh, the pandemic. Because I bet you that societies that uh, that had faith that their government was doing things in the best interest of the public and believed that the media wasn't fake news. Um, uh, I think those communities probably have fared better mm. than than other communities. Um, and so, um, you know, that's why I think the challenge around Trump was so dangerous to the pandemic for them, because not only were his actions undermining people's faith in government, he was also undermining the faith in media. Right. And so who do you trust? Yeah. You know, and so I think we've we've been pretty lucky here in BC, and that's part of our success story. And I'm knocking out wood, and I hope that it continues to be a success story. But um, you know, it's it's going to be something that we have to look at after and say, how can we do better uh, yeah. with everything we do? No, fair enough. And I and I do want to be clear, even though I was a big advocate for for masks when they were not mandated, I still deferred expertise to Dr. Body Henry. Yeah, yeah, and I think enough. she's done yeah. a f- fantastic job. But obviously you're going to get questions and people wondering things. And and that's all that I was trying yeah, no, to draw. Totally on. Good point, yeah. Let's get into some gossip, man. Oh man. Here we go. <laughs> Here we go. Can we talk about the BC Liberal leadership race? Oh man. Yeah. Oh, is it a race? I mean, well, I don't know. I don't... Kevin Falcon seems like the presumptive front runner. You're quite familiar with them. You, you guys are bros. Well, let me, let me start <laughs> off by saying this. The BC Liberals, they have a problem. The BC Liberals have a problem that they're stuck in 2001, mm. okay? Their mindset of how they view the economy, you know, uh, how they think they still pit resource communities against indigenous communities. But you and just said that they gave up on the free market idea. Uh, they've given up on the free market <laughs> idea. I mean, there's, but that's the only thing that's changed, perhaps. Um, and maybe you know, with some rebranding, they'll find their way back to it. But they're still stuck in 2001. And and Kevin Falcon is the poster boy for 2001. Yeah. You look, you know, George Abbott wrote the book about how deep their cuts were and how they didn't even need to probably go that deep, but they did anyways. Hmm. Um, he's the poster child for those cuts. You know, I read his um uh I read his uh op-ed that he put out to soften his image up, you know, a care about mental health op-ed. Yeah. I cringed. I cringed because I still remember when he was a minister in government and there was a young person on a bridge about to commit suicide and the police shut the bridge down. Okay. They shut the bridge down to mm-hmm. save this person's life. And Kevin Falcon went out and lambasted the police for doing that. Wow. Okay. This is 
And this person now has the audacity to write a op-ed that he he cares about mental health and, and addictions. Like maybe he's seen the light in his last few years as being a major developer in BC. Maybe now that experience of being a developer has has uh, you know maybe adjusted his views. But this is his record, you know. And you know, I know this. This is. I mean, I suspect that all these other people that they're trying to push to run, it's just to make it look like there's a race. I mean, you know, when Todd Stone j- dropped out, and and by the way, um, you know, actually Todd and I, we actually g- get along. When Good we guy, talk. I like yeah. him. He's been and, on the show. You know, and Very uh, and and um, and, uh, and Ellis Ross. I like Ellis Ross. Like I do like Ellis Ross, but he doesn't believe in climate change. Um, and so is that true? Yeah, yeah. Uh, he he he. Um, you should bring him on the show and talk to him <laughs> about it. I, I don't want to put words in his mouth. I and I listen to all his speeches because when he talks about his community and he talks about his experience as an indigenous leader, I value his lived experience. Mm-hmm. I don't agree with everything he says, but I value his experience. Mm-hmm. But you, you can't lead a province if you don't believe in climate change. And 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 when I see Kevin Falcon's op-ed, uh, I I cringe. You know, and you know again. This guy. You've known this guy. I, I, I followed him. I've been in politics the time that he was in politics. I followed everything he's uh, he's done. Uh, you know, he endorsed Maxine Bernier. He endorsed Maxine <laughs> Bernier. Okay, and don't tell no, me he, did. he, he did. did. He did. It's he not just him. He got a photo with he, him. He got a photo with him. He endorsed him. And you know what? <laughs> don't tell me it's because he was wearing a blue uniform and not a purple one. Because the person was still the same. You know, y- your privilege did not allow you to see what this person really was mm-hmm. and you want to lead the province now you want to lead a province and you know don't tell me you're going to put a couple of young diverse people on your campaign team as co-chairs and announce that you're going to revive the party when you have such a blind spot that you're going to support Maxine Bernier and so i uh you know uh, it's it's a coronation. Uh, the other ones are i mean all the other names are just being put out there as a show um all the big money all the uh, the the boys who the run the run the party uh, that are in the boardrooms they've already got their horse in the race hmm. uh, and uh, and it's him and so wow. you know I think they might as well just put him in the legislature now uh, maybe Andrew Wilkinson wants to give up his seat so that he can uh, he can get into the legislature and let's just get at it because I think there's some good debates to happen. That's a that's a very fascinating take. One thing I'll say is that if you're going to talk about renewal, yeah. Maybe don't dip into reruns from the aughts, you know? Maybe bring a new new face. I always found that part interesting. I actually agree with you. And it's weird because we didn't talk about this, but I have the same theory. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to run it by you. And it's probably going to be a mirror image of what you just said. But but I want to run this. Are you familiar with pro wrestling? Uh, I used to watch a little bit, but yeah, tell me what. So this is a pro wrestling-esque angle. (laughs) I feel like right now the BC Liberals... They're all adhering to kayfabe, and kayfabe yeah. is the portrayal of staged events as real. Right. And so what I mean by this is, as you said, I also agree that this is a big coronation for Kevin Falcon. What I've heard on the street from BC liberals is that he has basically put half of Vancouver, figuratively speaking, on retainer. Comms people, strategy people, people who could run this campaign, because he's trying to block other potential candidates from hiring them, allegedly. Mm-hmm. This is what I've heard. and. I also agree with you that I think the party wants him to win, but they are encouraging other candidates to run so they can have a proper race, quote mm-hmm. unquote. And so you go down the list. Ellis Ross, I think, I did not know this thing about climate change, but I actually think he might be the most legitimate candidate outside of Falcon. But given that 
the BC Liberal focus is on recapturing seats in urban areas, I don't see how the Victoria or Vancouver BC Liberal brass can really be that high on him. Michael Lee, he's basically been the invisible man since the proportional representation referendum. Yeah. For what was a really good showing in the first time that he ran for leader, he's just been quiet for years now. He doesn't do any media. He's not really out there. And BC liberals know this. Gavin Dew, his name has come up. Nice guy, has written some very flowery pieces about coming together and inclusion and renewal. A lot of what I'll call like managerial talk, like synergy and thinking outside the box, right? Like nothing hard, tangible stuff. The one policy proposal Gavin Dew had was teaching coding in BC schools, which we already do. <laughs> yeah. and, 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 and now there's a question whether even coding is even relevant, right. which is a different topic altogether. Yeah. Renee Merrifield, I think she's had some communications issues, but mostly contained within the social media realm. I don't know if many people even particularly know her in, in the province. Rookie MLA, from what I've seen, very personable, well-spoken. Uh, based on rumors, she seems to be the least likely nominee in terms of the names mm -hmm. throwing out there, but she might be there, so who knows. I just get the feeling that this is like a pro-wrestling angle or match where there will be some bumps, some improvisation, but the outcome is predetermined. And actually, what I learned from your team is that people often have reasons other than winning when they run for office or when they mm -hmm. run for a position. And raising your profile is one of those reasons. And I think that might be one of those reasons for some of these candidates. So I just feel like it's this big orchestrated production unless Aaron Gunn runs and shakes things up as this outsider yeah. candidate, dark horse candidate. And you, I thought this was a conspiracy theory. Yeah. I, I had a tinfoil hat ready for you. <laughs> But you're you said it before I did. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, he is a bit of a dark horse, and uh, and I like the rustling analogy actually. And uh, I think that's exactly what's happening. Uh, you know, I think uh, you know they've decided they want to go back uh, and then try to make it into the future. <laughs> yeah. You know, and I think that's what they've decided. They think that somehow um, somebody who was part of all the cuts that they did that we're still paying the prices for now is going to be the revival, and um, and that'll be an interesting performance that they put on. Uh, you mentioned some of the other candidates. I think that, you know, like I said, when Todd dropped out, um, and, you know, and I've got a lot of critiques on Todd. I mean, what he did to ICBC was, you know, borderline criminal, like, you know, just ran that thing into the ground. It was awful. But he was uh, seen by many of the BC Liberals as at least younger and, you know, uh, more presentable. Um, when he dropped out, I think it was understood that Kevin Falcon's race. And so I think they might try to do that to run a little profile uh, piece. But this, but Aaron Gunn, I don't know enough about him. I, I've seen some of the stuff and it makes me cringe. Um, but, you know, uh, if, if you've got one candidate who endorsed Maxine Bernier and one candidate who wants to be Maxine Bernier openly, <laughs> I don't know what's the difference. I mean, you know, um, it's a tomato, tomato. It's a lipstick on a pig, in my opinion. So you sound pretty comfortable in terms of like, you don't sound like you're very threatened by these guys leading the opposition potentially. Well, we're comfortable in who we are. Hmm. We know who we are. You know, we 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 know that we're for people. We know that we are going to be pushing an innovation agenda and focusing on climate change and addressing inequality. 
who are they? I mean, you know, who are they? Like, what are they? You know, and I, I know who Kevin Falcon will be. Uh, you know, in public, he'll be, I care about mental health. And then, you know, and behind the scenes, he'll be whatever, uh, you know, serving whatever masters are cutting the checks to keep everybody on retainer right now. Um, but we know the reason why we feel comfortable is because we know who we are and we know we, where we want to take society to. And so, uh, they're going to find somebody. Um, and you know, uh, as much as sometimes I go head to head with Shirley Bond, she's probably the most capable leader that they have. Um, in fact, I think she probably is one of the most capable leaders that she had. Mm-hmm. I was a fan of John Martin, actually, and they, okay. uh, they ostracized him and put him outside. But yeah. when I went to their liberal convention, uh, before the election, uh, I was sent as the, uh, uh, the person that was, uh, you know, goes there and, you know, responds to media and pays attention to mm. what they're saying. And I, when John Martin did a speech before Adam Wilkinson, I said right away, I said, they're, they're in trouble. Because John Wil- uh, Adam, uh, sorry, um, um, Andrew, John Martin was way better. <laughs> Uh, then, uh, then Andrew Wilkins. Now he's gone too. Yeah. But they need someone who's got some charisma, and uh, and uh, and right now they don't seem to have anyone that has it. Let's talk about charisma. Mm-hmm. You and I have chatted in the past, but nothing like this. Mm-hmm. Certainly not sitting down for an hour and chatting. You have a lot of charisma. You're you're you speak very eloquently. It's accessible. Mm-hmm. I can follow what you're saying. I don't feel like I'm being talked down to or that you're trying to prove that you're smart. Mm-hmm. You're talking to me as a real person. Your name keeps coming up as a potential successor to John Horgan. Mm-hmm. I know you're going to say, I'm not interested. I'm focused on my file right now. Yeah. But we all do a little future tripping where we think down the line. Is that something that interests you? I'm not interested. I, I'm not interested. I, I'll tell you, I, I worked for Adrian Dix when he was leader. Um, I worked for the premier when he was just became leader. I traveled with him. It is a hard job. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, it's, it has a toll on families. It has a real toll on families. And so um, because of that, uh, I don't have, <laughs> you know, I want to spend time with my kid. Uh, he's 10 years old. And, um, and you know, when I went to school with him, uh, uh, the first uh, day of uh, September when we took him down and we were walking to school and he dropped my hand. As he got to his friends. Oh, no. <laughs> I realized that these moments are um, uh, going away. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I lost my dad, right? Yeah. And so all these things uh, remind you, I think, and the pandemic reminds you of what's important. And yeah. for me, I've learned through sport that leadership is not always being in the front. Like when you're on a team, sometimes leadership is... T- being in the front and sometimes leadership is being in the back. And so I've taken that same view to this and I, I, I'm, I'm honored for the role that I have. We have amazing people that will probably run for leadership. Uh, and, you know, I, you know, you can always say never say never, but it's just never been something that's been hmm. like, you know, for me, I always just, I wanted to represent my community and that was it. And so we'll see what happens in the future, but, um, you know, <laughs> I, I, it's not me. I, I, I'm happy with having a balance of my family and then serving the community. And we'll see. You know, I, I go one term at a time, and we'll see what happens after that. In explaining that, and this is not a judgment at all. This is actually a, a, a open to this, and this is what this space is for. You were getting a little emotional there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, my dad passed away in the campaign, right? He passed yeah. away in, on day one. Um, and, you know, you talk about most senior all the time, right? Yeah, of course, and, yeah. and And so, you know, the, 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 the most challenging part of that is, first, it was in a, a pandemic. Anyone that's lost a loved one during a pandemic will tell you not being able to grieve with your family mm-hmm. 
is hard. Uh, and so we're still as a family dealing with, uh, with that, but you know, it's also, you know, not getting a chance to, um, have the conversations you wish you had had with yeah. your parents. Right. My last conversation with him was on Sunday night. He said, is there gonna be an election? Uh, <laughs> I was like, I don't know. Actually, you know, to be honest with you, I, I didn't really know. And we, we, we kind of like, I was in a cabinet, so I don't know the decision was made. And, mm -hmm. and I said, you know, it looks like there might be, and you know, like, you know, Prima is going to make some sort of announcement tomorrow. And then he went off and he was, you know, he's playing soccer actually with his friends. Um, and he came back and my mom called and she's like, he won't let me call an, a paramedic but he's having chest pains. Hmm. Um, and so we're like, call. So anyways, paramedics show up and his last words were, you guys go to bed, I'll be back. They took him. Two hours later, we got a phone call saying, hey, your dad's passed away. Hmm. And apparently he'd had small heart attacks leading up. They couldn't believe that he'd played soccer. Oh my God. And, uh, and so, you know, that whole experience, it changed me. Like yeah. it honestly has changed me. Um, I don't stress out about things like I used to. Like I was so, my sporting life, I've just been like, you know, every day is like competitive competition, you know, this, yeah. I, it just changed me. Like I, I, I've, I found that I'm valuing, valuing different things in different times. And so, yeah, the whole thing was challenging, but again, it's also, you know, the, the things, then you reflect on your life and, you know, it wasn't a, it wasn't a perfect relationship, right? Um, you know, it, it, there was huge sacrifices made by them, my mom and dad, mm -hmm. Uh, my sister and I were sent to India for four years. Right. We, no FaceTime, no Zoom. Yeah. You know, uh, one phone in the village uh, at the not time. Not cheap, not cheap at not that cheap. time. Not cheap. Phone call comes, you run here, talk to your mom or dad. And, you you know, at that age, you forget after a while, like, you know, like I'm living a different life. Yeah. You come back. So they made huge sacrifices. But my dad was a tough cookie. Uh, you know, like he was, uh, you know, I remember I was, uh, like 10 years old and he came to my first, first time ever watching my soccer game. My grandpa used to take me mm -hmm. and, uh, at halftime I looked on the sideline, he wasn't there anymore. And, uh, the game ended, <laughs> I'm looking for him. I couldn't find him. He left, he left me at the field and he told one of the other parents, he said, he's not working hard enough. I can't stand this anymore. I'm wow. leaving. And the parents, the other parents were like, oh, well, okay, well, we'll, we'll take you home. And so when I remember he was coaching my son at one of the practices and I was like, oh, dad, I'm like, please, I'm like, please. I mean, you know, and he said to me, he goes, he goes, he goes, what? He goes, what? My son just made it to two Olympics and uh, he, now he's an MLA. He's like, I'm, I'm right. I'm going to write a book about it. <laughs> and so, you know, it makes you reflect on all those things. But yeah. And the reason why it all matters to this is that someone asked me recently, Hey, you know, you've got this file, it's called economic recovery. And are you, um, do you, uh, do you feel pressure? And I thought to myself, I am a child of an immigrant <laughs> to this country. Yeah. That, there's no pressure you can put on me that they didn't put on me. And you yeah. would know this with most of here, right? Of course. Kids who are, bor are born here, but their parents have immigrated here, they know pressures like nobody else. Yeah. Right? I, when you, uh, you go to the Olympics, I'll, yeah, all right. Well, did you, you didn't win anything? <laughs> like, you know, like, you, what, you went and you came back? Like, you want, you want to, you want a pat on the back? Yeah. Right? Like, you know, and someone's like, oh, you, you became a minister. Your dad would be proud. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if he would have been proud. I think he would have been like, okay. Like, he would have been proud. He he been I, proud. I think he would have been yeah. like, well, but what are you doing? Uh, you know, and so I, I use that, you know, so. Anyways, the point is that it um, it re that kind of experience changes the way you view life. Yeah. You know, I've covered grief on this podcast, and I got very personal with it because my mom passed away before she turned 50. It was 11 years ago. And 
on the 10th anniversary of her passing. So last year I, I did a whole episode on grief and basically, you know, we, we kind of unpacked a lot of what grief is and how we internally shame ourselves with grief. We think we're supposed to get over things or we think we can't show our emotions. So when you did just show that emotion in that question that was unrelated, I appreciated that. And I think it's important. And it's particularly important, I think, for leaders to show that human side, not as a political comm strategy, but just to show that it's okay. And these mm-hmm. things are important. And, you know, I, I think that we still live in a culture that shames grief in a little bit. I think we put grief in a hierarchy sometimes without recognizing that all grief matters, regardless of what it is. And we set ourselves with these expectations that we have to get over things when I don't think grief works like that. I think grief is like a, a passenger mm-hmm. in your life. And you're right. Like, again, I asked a question about something different. You, you brought mm-hmm. up your son and, and your dad, but it, it bleeds into other stuff, mm-hmm. right? It bleeds mm-hmm. into how you look at the world. Yeah. And it's one of those journeys for me. I mean, I'm now 11 years into it from, from my mom passing away. And there's certain lessons that I learned in that journey. And then through COVID, there's even more lessons mm-hmm. that you learn. And it is about what's important and that time is fleeting. Mm-hmm. You know, I have a couple of friends, it's, speaking of COVID, you know, I have a couple of friends who they have new new babies that were born mm-hmm. in 2020. Mm-hmm. And those babies haven't seen their, their grandparents. Mm-hmm. And so you look at this thing, which is otherwise a happy thing, you know, a new new child. But yeah. for those parents, it's like, all you know, this time is fleeting and they can't see their grandparents and, it, and it's tough. And, and where I'm going with this is, I think, specifically in the South Asian community, you know, our brothers, our dads, our mm-hmm. uncles, our men have a difficult time confronting this issue of, of grief. And we're kind of told to toughen up and all mm-hmm. this other stuff. Like a lot of other men across cultures, people look at you as a leader. And I think that goes beyond politics. So I want to leave the next question a bit open-ended, but more to build on what you just said. How have you coped with digesting your grief without suppressing it, without mm-hmm. shaming it, while still having to be on this public platform? I mean, you were running in an election and you're talking about serious issues, certainly now with COVID and economic recovery, you're talking about ser- serious business. How do you manage the two? Not well enough. <laughs> yeah, it's <laughs> yeah, hard. <laughs> that, that, that's the, the truth. You know, um, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a funny thing, you know. Um, it comes up in different ways. Like the Christmas holidays were awful. Mm-hmm. You know, my mom lives with my brother in Victoria and because of the COVID restrictions, I couldn't be with her. Yeah. Um, That's tough. And so, you know, when people talk about, you know, seeing politicians from other places that were doing the traveling and all that stuff, I also get furious because mm-hmm. I didn't get to see my mom. Yeah. You know, and so, you know, it's it's hard. I think that the one thing about COVID, um, I think that everybody is starting to come to grips with is that we all had a sense of loss. Some had more mm-hmm. and some had less, but we're all dealing with a sense of loss. Mm-hmm. And we're all, and I think everyone is coming to the, um, also to that important conversation is like, what do we value? Yeah. What is important? You know, I have friends who were like, I wasn't planning on retiring, but, I, but I'm, re- I'm going to retire. Like, I, you know, like I realized that, what was I doing? Mm-hmm. You know, so I think there's a, this, there's retrospect, 
this this thinking, this this um, this dialogue that probably we should have had a long time ago, but people were so busy in their lives. Now they have the opportunity to have that conversation, and and certainly um, I've been having it uh, internally. I got such a supporting family, um, and uh, but yeah, there is a bit of like you know you deal with it, and then you kind of go on, and then you deal with it, and you go on, and and uh, and you would know that it's mm-hmm. it's never ending, and and there's birthdays and all that stuff yeah. that comes with it. So, but you know what I found really amazing is that. There have been some people who just reach out to me yeah. uh, who are just checking up once in a while. Um, people that I don't even know, you know, people in the media that uh, lost loved ones who just kind of message me and just be like, "Hey, just just checking how you're doing." And so I really, um, I really appreciate that, and and that's what gets you through this. And and you know, I just say to folks that it's hard. This pandemic is hard, but we're going to make it through, and uh, and we're going to come out uh, better than we were before. Just as we wrap up here, I want to zoom out a little bit, but build on this idea. Again, very much appreciate you sh- being emotionally authentic and, and showing that and sharing that side of yourself. When we look at leadership and who represents us in office, obviously we want people who are going to work hard, people who are going to understand their files, do the work, and represent people. How important is it for political leaders to also be cultural leaders? Mm-hmm. Because I think, like in this example, you know, I think it's important for people who have public pl- platforms to show that, you know, grieving is okay. Mm-hmm. It's this idea of the strong silent type is nonsense, and and showing the the benefits of community. I mean, that's that's not a tangible policy. That's just showing that and and advocating for togetherness and community and taking care of each other. How important is that piece? in political leadership? Because you seem like a guy that really does reach out, connects with his community. And, you know, some might be cynical and say, oh, it's because you want to get reelected or whatever. But I also think that that piece goes, is is more important than we might think it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I think that, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm fortunate I'm surrounded by great leaders, you know, like uh, my mom <laughs> is a phenomenal leader, um, and uh, you know, in, in a different text, right? She's not sure. leading a party. She's not leading people, um, but she leads our house mm-hmm. <laughs> and runs it. And so, um, there's lots of uh, different forms of leadership. Um, and like, you know, I, I've got amazing leaders around me. You know, like uh, we got new MLAs. We got you know, um, Minister Dix and uh, EB and Bowen Ma and Katrina Chen. Like, I mean, the list can go on. You know, Minister Farnworth and Heyman and Rolston. Like Robinson, like amazing mm-hmm. leaders, um, but all of us different. Uh, and so I always say that we need people to step up into leadership, but they don't have to conform to be one type mm. of leader. Be the leader you want to be. Don't be what you like. I, I do things different than other people. <laughs> I do things on social media where people are like, you're an elected official. What are you posting that for? And I'm like, because I don't want to lose who I am yeah. in the pursuit of what people think I should be. Uh, and so, um, you know, I would say that we need people to be more authentic. Mm-hmm. Uh, we need that more now than ever. And, uh, and, and I would just l- encourage people that are listening, say, you know, if, even if you don't see yourself doing it, do it because you'll find out you actually are a pretty amazing leader uh, and everyone's styles are different. Mm-hmm. Well, I appreciate that. I, I thank you for sharing. We're way over time and, and you were very generous with your time. Ravi, Minister Kalon, as we wrap it up here, what is your call to action to the to the listener? 
Uh, my call to action is to continue to follow the directions that we're given. Um, follow the advice. Keep yourself safe, your community safe, um, and uh, and you know we're going to get through this. I mean, we are <laughs> as we we've been talking about, right? That light, that tunnel is just too long, but we're going to make it through. Uh, and then when we make it through, let's remember. Uh, all the things that are important to us. Um, remember that uh, family is critically important. Community is critically important. Don't lose sight that, yes, we need to have the economy, but we need to make sure that everybody sees the benefits of a rising economy. And, and, uh, and let's not have a separation of the two. Let's always remember that they're combined. Awesome. Ravi, I really okay. enjoyed this, man. Just as I wrap up, you know, on the show, I, I always appreciate openness and I appreciate when people are genuine more than anything else. I like you as a person. I, I, I like your style. And even though I have no interest in running for politics myself, I do actually look to people like you. I, I, and I will even say on the other side of the aisle, Jazz Joe Hall, to the South Asian women like Simi Sarah, Karen Kunkun, Rachna Singh, mm-hmm. you know, so many others. I, I look to you guys' role models. And of course, I have non-South Asian role models as well, but I think representation is so important to me and it's so important to our community. And I just want to say that I appreciate your willingness to chat with anyone about anything. Uh, so thank you for being here today. Yeah, thanks, Mo. Thanks for having me and uh, look forward to coming back on again in the future. Sometime. Absolutely. <laughs> thanks, brother. People, he is an Olympian. He is the BC NDP MLA for Delta North and the BC Minister of Jobs, Economic Recovery and Innovation. And you know what? Yeah, he is my big brother. (laughs) He is Minister Ravi Kalon, and I am Mo Amir telling you that in a city where you can be anything, be colorful. Peace. Peace.